Hello, and thanks for listening to the Goblin Lore Podcast. Just a brief note before we get to the show, we got a lot of great questions from Twitter that we just didn't have time to address in this episode, so we'll be doing so in a future episode. And some of those topics actually are things we've been brainstorming to actually devote full episodes to in the future. In this episode, we're going to talk mostly about our favorite pieces of magic trash, uh, sort of the ridiculous, the nonsensical, the whimsical, uh, or the downright stupid parts of magic lore. Uh, We're going to talk about our connections to magic, how we are involved in the community, and how we got involved in magic in the first place. And of course, we have to talk about the brand new story that dropped this past week on magic.wizards.com, the Chronicle of Bolas, the first chapter of the Core 19 story, The Twins. So, without any further ado, let's jump right in. Hello, Podwalkers, and welcome to episode one of the Goblin Lore Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Redman. You can find me on Twitter at Findhorn, like the forest or the brownie or the elves. And this is uh, a, just a little bit of an introduction of what we're planning to do with this show. We wanted to look at story, look at lore in the magic universe, and, and not just for the sake of looking at lore, not just to understand magic story in and of itself, but to find connections between the story of the game that we all love and our own lives. Um, you know, we'll talk more about this later, but there's uh, story can mean so much more than just being an entertainment thing. Story is a representation. Story is um, a way that we process the world around us. And so we want to take those tidbits, those nitty gritty details of Magic's multiverse and and find out what they mean on a deeper level for us all. For those of you looking for a show that's going to be a recap of story, this isn't exactly what that is going to be. This is going to be digging into lore. We'll we'll recap the the relevant points of stories and break down what needs to be said, but we're not going to just do a book report. We're not just going to re-talk about the history of stories. We're going to talk about the concepts and ideas that are important to these stories. So mostly every week, we'll be doing this podcast on a different topic from the real world as it relates to Magic the Gathering. It might be something like, where do planeswalker sparks come from or how do they function? It might be the metaphysics of the blind eternities. It might be the morality of somebody like Urza the planeswalker. Uh, but we're going to be looking at all of these different concepts and figuring out how they function in both the story and world of the game and our own lives. Every episode will have that main theme. We'll also do sort of a quick hit. Uh, We'll often have guest co-hosts, although I and one of my regular co-hosts will always be there. And we'll just sort of bring in different experts. We are by no means experts in every part of Magic the Gathering or Vorthos in specific even. We believe that not only is this an opportunity for you, the listeners, to learn and grow and think, this is an opportunity for us to challenge our own beliefs, our own thoughts, and have other people begin those conversations that are important to us through that lens of Magic the Gathering. And so I'm really lucky to be joined today by... Uh, my two co-hosts here for episode one, uh, and I'll actually I'll throw the the ball over to you guys and let you introduce yourselves. 
Well, hello, everybody. I am Hobbs Q. Um, I can be found on Twitter at Hobbs Q. Um, I'm kind of bringing a perspective of this. Of one of the things uh, Joe and I have talked about is, you know, how does magic represent psychology? Um, you know, I, I am not as versed in some of the storylines. This is going to be kind of my time to learn some of the stuff that I have always been interested in but don't have the knowledge base for. But I do bring kind of information from a different perspective. And I've already, I mean, the reason I was interested in joining this was I've had some of these discussions online with Twitter people, whether it's the representation of trauma in Gideon, for instance, and even talking about maybe his resiliency versus some other people who have experienced trauma. Um, and so it, this just seemed like a great opportunity, and I'm really looking forward to kind of bringing um, the psychology to the Vorthos. Hello, uh, I'm Alex. Uh, I've found on Twitter at Alexander New M. Uh, and I'm coming from the, the perspective of someone who's you know, a casual player of the game, but I'm, I'm big in the, I really enjoy being part of the community and kind of the hanging out aspect and playing and, and um, using the game as a creative element. So I, I have a lot of vorthosy. Yes, I enjoy some of the creative elements of the game, but also from a Mel perspective, which is more looking at the mechanics and enjoying how the mechanics work together. Um, and it's, it's a little hard to explain, so I, I love to use this card as an example to explain sort of the Mel side. It's a card from Future Sight called Ikor Slick. Uh, two and a black for a sorcery. Target creature gets minus three, minus three until end of turn. I love this card. It's not a great card, but I love it because the rest of the card is cycling for two colorless and madness for three and a black. So it's a, the, the, those two mechanics interact in really interesting ways and create different lines of play where you can play it for two and a black, you can cycle it for two, or you can cycle it and because you're discarding it, cast it for its madness cost. And that's sort of the mill thing that I love how these mechanics interact from a crunchy rules standpoint. Yeah. And we'll, we'll get into a little bit more of that, uh, Vorthos and Mel discussion. Cause those are kind of the two aesthetic, um, aesthetic ways of, of understanding magic that, that we'll dig into a bit. And, and Hobbs, you've got something on the, um, the idea of the psychographic profiles too, that we'll get to in a second. Um, but, uh, yeah, and I'm, like I said before, I'm Joe Redman. I'm the host of the show. Um, specifically, I come at magic from a story standpoint. I have always been fascinated with the flavor text of magic cards. That's, you know, kind of that first bit of, of a glimpse into the story of, of magic when you first open a pack of cards. That's how you start knowing, oh, these are... These are people, these, these are worlds that we're going to. These are, you know, different places that we're trying to discover. Um, and so I'm actually looking uh, above me right now on my desk and I have, gosh, I think 35 or so of the paperback magic novels uh, from, from the 90s and early 2000s. Um, and, and that's, that's, I mean, I'm a theater artist, I'm a teacher, like, it, for me, it is all about story, it's all about that narrative, and, and finding our way of writing our own narratives. For me, even a game of magic is, you're, like, retelling the story in a different way. Um, so, I, I, that's where I come at it from, and that's why we're doing this show, is because we all bring something different to the Vorthos table, um, but all of that is a different access point into figuring out why this story means something, why these games mean something to us 
on a deeper level. Um, so maybe we can talk about the, the psychographic profiles here first then, Hobbs. Um, since you're our, our resident psychologist, um, you know, what it, what's a psychographic profile and why is it important for magic players and Vorthosis to know what this is? Yeah, so I mean, uh, you know, along, I mean, where it started was, was, you know, Mark Rosewater kind of came up with these gamer profiles. It was kind of a way to almost define people's personalities kind of related to how they see the game and then play the game. And so in particular, he introduced us to Timmy, Johnny, and my mind is going blank this morning. Spike. Spike. That all came with the game in different ways. See, Spike, I think, came to my mind last because I'm not a spiky player, even though most of the play group would disagree with that. Um but these are kind of ways that people could approach the game. And, and, and what's very fun about this is that in the unworld, our, our silver-bordered world, all of these psychographics have been given cards. So you know you have Johnny, who's a combo player, and all he cares about is how can he interact with the cards? How can he come up with a ridiculous combo that takes three or four cards to pull off but is really satisfying when you do? Um, it's really about kind of how those things interact. And then we have... Uh, we've got Timmy who just likes to do big things. I kind of liken it to that amazing kind of uh, one of those memes that shows kind of like the different styles of play and it shows like legacy is a chess match and it shows, I don't even remember standard is basically uh, Candyland. And the last one for EDH just basically shows dinosaurs with like laser beams. And I kind of <laughs> think of that as Timmy just wants to like throw things at people's faces and be big. And go, like he loves the big cards that come out, like the green monsters and dragons and anything huge. And then you have Spike, and and Spike will play the same cards as is Timmy and Johnny, but Spike cares about winning. He's going to care more about what the cards kind of do. And and so a long time there's been this discussion about that. And later on we got more of some of the aesthetics pieces what what this cast is about is kind of that forthos and i'm gonna say we're probably gonna hit tip into that melvin piece they came along later well the problem with how they're set up right now is that a lot of them are kind of talked about as if they're categorical like you have people are asked like well what type of magic player are you are you a spike well are you a Jim, a timmy um and i will say too that one of the things that has come out over the years which i think is great is they they, they did try to more come up with non-gendered terms or at least kind of you know like I, I i don't remember all of them but it's like timmy and tammy and, johnny and jenny and i don't know what the spike one is spike, spike was just the neutral yeah spike is neutral so which is great because the idea was that you know every player can kind of be defined by one of these categories well that's not really how life works um and especially as we're going to be talking a lot here about more of the aesthetic pieces I, I just want to highlight that idea that we none of us are going to be one or the other. And in psychology, we talk about this a lot. Things are not really truly just categorical. Things tend to be on dimensions. So it's not – it doesn't even need to be that you know Melvin and Vorthos are on the same line. They're their own separate lines, and you can be 0 to 50 on one and 0 to 50 on the other. And it might be, okay, I'm really, really high on Vorthos. I'm pretty low on the Melvin, but you're going to have some interaction. And the same comes with Timmy, Spike, Johnny. I mean, you're going to have basically 
you're going to run along those dimensions. And I think it's something important for us to keep in mind when we're talking about magic. So if you were to, if you were to categorize yourself and, and I don't mean, I don't mean categorize yourself as put yourself in one bucket, but g- give us some percentages, Alex, what's your, what's your play style. And I know you said you're at least 50, 50 Vorthos and Mel. Are, are you more Mel than Vorthos? I think from, from a play style, I probably am more Mel. Um, mm. From what's interesting outside of play, talking and conversing, that's more on the Vorthos side. And that kind of goes a, a little bit to what Hobbs was saying, too, is you're not always one thing, the same thing in this, all the time. You mm. can kind of shift a little bit. Like, I have more spiky decks sometimes. I have my more Johnny decks. Um, but from a, looking at the Vorthos Mel spectrum, I think playing I'm more... Uh, from a mill. I really like to find the mechanics that interact. I like to find the two or three things that seem a little disparate, but I can put them in the same deck and they interact in a way that you might not notice. You, you wouldn't notice from uh, looking at different angles. But then from a conversation standpoint, I think the Vorstel stuff is just a lot more interesting to talk about. And I think that we, you know, we've talked about this before, uh, the three of us. You know, one of the decks that I love to play, it, it in some ways intersects in that Melvin and Vorthos, at least in my opinion, because, uh, you know, one of my favorite current decks and has been one of my favorite decks for a long time is Norn the Wary Soul Sisters, and we get a, a, a character card here. It's a legendary. I mean, we it, he, Norin comes into that time spiral block. And basically is Sir Robin from Monty Python. I mean, he runs away at everything. I mean, he runs away if something enters. He runs away if something attacks. He, he doesn't care. He runs away. And it was always just so fascinating to me because here's this story card. And like I'm like, wow, it's kind of funny they introduced that. I like that. Yet the Melvin side is then well, like, well, that, that, that's a mechanic that I can play with. That's something that I, what can I do with this? And not even in a spiky, let's break it. It's just, this is interesting to me. What can it do? What are the ways that I can do it? Well, I can do it to gain life. I can do it to come in and deal damage. And it just, it, it, when I play that deck, that is what's in my mind is really like, I have this storyline, this narrative about Norin, <laughs> but he's just hanging out with his soul sisters. He's just helping them out. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so Hobbs, then you, we've categorically determined that you are not a spike whatsoever. <laughs> Not not in your debt building, not in the way that you play, nothing like that, right? Wink, 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 wink. Uh, what what would you call yourself if you if you did have to sort of give yourself percentages? One of our other playgroup members has commented often that my decks are built to kind of dictate how the game is played, whether I win or not. Mm-hmm. So I play Zosu the Punisher. I that's just trying to speed up the game. If I I want the game to go quicker. Um, I play Rorik Thar because I just want people to not play spells. And I, I mean, so I, I really do try to play something that I can play the deck in such a way that it dictates how the game is played. Um, so that's a, that's then, a little bit Timmy-ish, actually, is that what I'd say? Because you're going for a different feel, a different, you know. Right. Like, yeah. I, I, it's, yes, I just want to be in charge. I mean, right. I don't know what, what psychographic that is. But, but what's interesting is my favorite deck, the deck that has changed the league, is my most Vorthos deck. It's Bolas. Mm-hmm. And it's Bolas clones and stealing. And we're going to get into Bolas today, I think is kind of some of the meat and potatoes of what we're talking about. And I, this could be the jumping off point because at the end of the day, my deck is really about, okay, you're serving Bolas. You don't want to, but you are. Right, right. 
Lily well, knows what I'm talking about. I was just going to say, that's, that is a perfect jumping off point, because this week we had uh, the first uh, Core 19 story drop, and uh, it, was, it was a doozy of revelations. So just to recap a little bit of story, uh, we're not going to do this often where we dig super deep into recapping stories or like talking about I don't know. We'll have some speculation and all that, but that's not the core of what we're going to do. Um, but this this end of the Dominaria story arc, um, we saw that Liliana broke her pact with the demons, finally like got free of them, but all of her pact lines, her pact tattoos were still there. Uh, and, you know, it was revealed that the pact was defaulted then to Nicol Bolas, who had brokered it. And so she now is essentially a slave to Bolas. And, uh, and so now we move into Core 19, and the first thing that we see is essentially the birth of Bolas. And, and as, our, as our resident uh, Bolas uh, historian and scholar, Hobbes, do you want to b- break down the biggest reveal of this story? Well, it was revealed that, okay, we've had this, we've had, Bolas and Ugin. I mean, they kind of have been set up now, finally, in a great way to be juxtaposed as kind of the yin and yang, the fight between us. People are going to say it's the fight between good and evil, and they're right. They just don't have the side correct. And <laughs> what we learned is that Ugin and Bolas are twins. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I thought the, yeah. even the most interesting part of this too is that you see in this story, you see um, uh, Bolas is focused very much on his current, present, uh, physical realm, the existential dangers around him. Like, we've got to save our sister, this sort of stuff. we got to get revenge for our sister. Whereas Ugin is looking at the world through this lens of, like, hazy discovery, of this dreaming almost. So you have revenge on one hand, you have dreaming and, and possibility on the other. And that, again, like you said, yin and yang seems like a really great, um, a, a really great way to represent this. It's, a, it's very two opposite ends of, of what a dragon's ideal could be. And, and something interesting that kind of dovetail what you're saying, Joe, you see Bolas be a lot more immediate right now. We need to deal with what's right now, except we look in the future, in our present time in the magic storyline, he is very plot, long timeline oriented. So it's like, is this a skill he picked up from Ugin? Is this something he picked up somewhere along the lines? So hopefully as these stories go forward, we they start to fill in some of that background. We get to learn when Bolas started to become the plotter. And the, and the schemer that he is today. I personally think it started right after the fact that Ugin stole the right to name himself. I mean, that you don't take that from a dragon. This should be a, a podcast in and of itself. This is a connected and really intricately woven universe. And I think Magic Story, uh, Magic Story team is super aware of that. They're really tying this stuff together and creating, you know... Uh, sort of a, a, a unified mythology for us to, to dig into and, and find and, and figure out what it is that means something to us. And I want to kind of uh, come back a little bit to what we, so we, <laughs> being as we are a first podcast and how these things work, we had technical difficulties and lost our first um, whole story because we've recorded this the day basically that we learned about the twins thing. And what we were discussing on that day too 
was this fascinating piece of like us kind of wanting to know how bolus basically became bolus. I mean, it touches on what Alex was just talking about, that he's this discovery point. And we've not known how bolus sparked. Yeah, we don't know how he came to be this interplanar consortium guy. You know, like, we don't know anything. He's one of the biggest movers and shakers behind the scenes. And we don't know anything about his backstory until this until this Core 19 storyline. And so we were talking a little bit last time about kind of what we know about Bolas. Now, I've told you guys my theory completely is that this is all a Twilight Zone-based theme. Bolas got involved with some killing of people. I don't know how. It probably wasn't his fault. But what he wanted to do was sit around and read in his library, and his glasses probably broke his heart. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you take that one, Alex. Uh, what are your, what are your thoughts on this, on, on Hobbes's take here? I, I think that, uh, until we have a better theory, our, our resident, uh, Bolas ambassador probably is, is the most uh, reliable source that we have. I'm sorry, did you say Bolas apologist? (laughs) Oh, that works too. Yeah. (laughs) I never understand that term. I mean, what am I apologizing for? Being right? I mean, I like. Well, yes, because Bolas is so humble that he's always right, but you know, he, he'll let you learn that on your own. Right. <laughs> what we know about Bolas today, let's just stick with the art, okay? We've had wizards try to kind of change history by giving them these, even in From the Vault Dragons, an actual dragon looking art. But what we know is that Bolas was just a chill old dragon in a big library that's all we know about him he's sitting around books around him everywhere glasses on chilling and my my question is how do you go from chilling reading your favorite cop your favorite weathered copy of uh, withering heights to literally withering an entire plane of uh you know children warrior fighters on Amonkhet. Like that's, <laughs> I want to know what that arc is. His glasses broke. I mean, this is that simple. Like, I, yeah, it is. It is interesting though, to see what they're doing with this core 19 story and that we are going to get a lot of that. A lot of the questions I think answered about who Bolas is, but I don't know. Is that, do you think revealing all that stuff is going to lose some of the mystique of, of magic's big bad or, or do you think that'll flesh out some of that stuff? I, do you want to take this Alex for, um, I, I think there's a little risk of that sometimes, and it it depends on how they want to fra- frame him and how they want to use him. Uh, you see a lot of monster movies. You you know they they hide the monster for a while because as soon as you the thing that you imagine is more terrifying than the thing that they can show you. But on the flip side, I think what they're trying to do with Bolas is make him a fully fledged character. In which case, the more you know about where he came from, the more you know about his motivations and his, his goals, to some extent. You, you can't know all the details, otherwise it ruins the fun. But the more you understand about him as a person, the easier, the better character it is, the more compelling the conflict is, because now you have real people on both sides conflicting. I agree with that. I think something interesting, too, just to, to sort of cross... Um, fandom streams here is uh, I was recently listening to a podcast about Star Wars and they uh, recently, maybe like a year ago, um, wrote 
released a novel about Captain Phasma, one of the uh, new characters from the new trilogy. Um, you know that that she's a uh, she's like the lead stormtrooper person. Gwendolyn Christie plays her. You know, super interesting character to me in in the theory, but uh, they haven't really fleshed her out in the movies. But in this book, we we get her backstory. And the people on this podcast were saying, oh, well, we were expecting them to sort of make her a sympathetic character. But what you find out through this story is that even from, like, the earliest time that, that Captain Phasma was involved, you know, was was doing things, uh, she was sociopathic. Like, she was just murdering everybody. And so I'm I'm curious to find out, like, already we see those tendencies in Bolas in this first story. And is that, you know... I wonder if that if we are going to get a sympathetic view of him or if we're going to get some of that, um, you know, some of that more like, nope, he's just kind of always been. Uh, I'm going to stop you right there. I think it also comes down to what I can see with Bolas is it's not going to necessarily be that we're going to, at the end of the day, be sympathetic or that we're going to think that he's a good person. He is. But, I mean, not everybody else is going to believe this. But what we may get is at least an explanation for why he's doing what he's doing, and he may have a reason that we don't agree with. Even at the end of the day, we may not end up agreeing with it, but there may be a reason. Um, you know, when we were talking before, I kind of likened him to Thanos, and this is a full spoiler alert for anybody that hasn't seen Infinity War yet or read the comics, but. Thanos, in some ways, I mean, he's been he's been behind the scenes. We, I mean, we introduce him very early in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He's in the background, right? Which is how we've known Bolas really as of for now. He's manipulating planeswalkers, and he's manipulated multiple planeswalkers that do his bidding. But we don't know what the big plan is, and what we find in Infinity War, and, and I don't know where we're going with Bolas, but what we find is that. Thanos's motivation, at least where he believes he's coming from, is that the universe is finite in its resources and it's got overcrowding and we need to deal with that. And it could be that Bolas, at the end of the day, believes that he's the only one that can kind of stop the multiverse from collapsing. Because we've talked about this. There, there was a time when the multiverse basically could have collapsed. And it was more just like it would be really inconvenient for him to do that. It would, he doesn't like to die. Right. Right, and that was yeah, that was the whole time spiral block is where those those time rifts had had really racked Dominaria, and so much so that the man the mana was literally seeping out of the plane, like it would have. And as I believe that point in t- in uh, magic history, still Dominaria was considered the nexus. Is is that right, Alex? Sort of the center yeah. of the multiverse. Yeah, and if, if it if it went down, a lot of the multiverse was going to collapse with it. Yeah. So yeah, I mean yeah, Bolus somewhat contributed to helping fix in time spiral because if there's no multiverse, there's no multiverse for him to rule. So I, I mean, that's, it is that interesting push pull. I think there are a lot of interesting real world analogies that we can talk about with Bolas as, you know, uh, might makes right as, as this sort of, um, you know, as, as this dictator and, and there's a, there's a lot of real world stuff going on right now that we should, discuss as it relates to that too but we can get into that at a later date um i want to shift us a little bit here to something uh that might be 
just a little more whimsical. We're gonna dig. We're gonna do the the heavy stuff too. But we always also like to have fun. And one of my favorite things to you know sort of get to know somebody is find out like what their favorite parts of of trash is about something they love. And I don't, I don't mean trash is in like they think it's just terrible. That can be one definition of trash. But for me, uh, trash is also like you know I I loved watching Jersey Shore back in in college because it's such garbage. It's so fun because of how ridiculous it is. And so for me, there are some parts of magic history or magic gameplay or magic story that are just ridiculous and fun because they're nonsense. So uh, I want to ask you guys, uh, you know, to talk about like either what's, what's the thing that you love to hate in magic story and trash in that way, or, you know, maybe, maybe more so what is your favorite trashy bit that you're like, Ooh, that's just so goofy nonsense that I, I can't look away. It's so much fun. I, I don't know that it's, it's my, my favorite right now, but it is one that's, that's pretty recent and, and kind of relevant. Um, kind of noticing that it, it seems like the homunculi in magic just don't have any vowels in their names. Like we started with, with Fibble Thip and the card totally lost. And then he became a big deal and why wouldn't he be he's just amazingly cute and unfortunately lost it's, it's <laughs> tragic but then we run into uh Micklefid, who is uh, the the card jeering homunculus from from conspiracy take the crown but in the flavor text it has Micklefid actually a reference back to totally lost and so at two you know it was maybe a coincidence but then we get to uh Kylem and we we finally have zindersplit our, our first homunculus legend and and I think now once we get to three, this is this is definitely a pattern. So it's it seems like that might just be a thing in the world building. And this is three different worlds too. We've got Fibblethip on Ravnica, we've got uh, Micklethip on Fiora, and now Zindersplit on Kylam. Yeah, and um, Battlebond is the set. Yeah, yeah, and that's fascinating too because Homunculi haven't been uh, a featured part of really much of these stories. And like you said, they weren't really a part of the story until really Battlebond um, made them an integral part of Kyle M. They are the referees for the the games that take place at Valor's Reach. Yeah, and so it's super cool to me that that the story team or that you know continuity, whoever is sort of in charge of that, has that that deep of a, a sort of world building thing about them, even down to the. That there's a naming convention. You, I, we mentioned uh, J.R.R. Tolkien off air, and that's that seems very similar to what Tolkien did with the elves. You know, he developed this whole language specifically for the characters in his books. Like that's wild to me. And I think that what's funny to me too is that what we're seeing here is that maybe it's like with the. I'm guessing that what it is is that the homunculi are just Welsh, and they <laughs> either have all vowels or no vowels in their name. <laughs> So, Hobbs, why don't you let us know what's your favorite trash in the Magic Universe? Yeah, I mean, mine is, and I, I get I get made fun of a lot of on Twitter for different various correct viewpoints I have, whether it's white-bordered <laughs> cards or nickel bolus. But one of the ones that I think people think that I'm joking about and I'm not is Foglio art. Um, I actually love Foglio art. I, I really do. Um it's very different. It's not necessarily what Wizards wants at this point, but it is that different 80s, 90s fantasy that I wouldn't mind even returning to a plane that for some reason is like an 80s, 90s era D&D &D cartoon. 
that we have the Foglios and, and some of those other artists. I mean, even our, like uh, Richard Kane Ferguson coming back with his watercolors, but it's just, it's a different style. And with the Foglios, to me, it's the, you know, I think the piece that sticks out is Sulfurous Springs. We have Ice Age going on. We have the, you know, the first time we really show up with the kind of the um, uh, allied paired painlands, and we get a demon something chilling in a hot spring with his arms up around it like it's a spa. And I just love that. And what's interesting to me is like we, the Foglios get knocked a lot for that weird kind of quirky, whimsical style. But we also then now have the people that are responsible for the Mishra's cards that are so integral, the factories and the workshops. We also get the factories that span the seasons and, and, and have that same look in different seasons in these tree houses. I just, I love that art and I really do appreciate it. And, you know, there's a lot of discussion, I guess, within the art portion of the Bortos community that it's, it's not really high art, but to me, it's a part of like, it's, it's like the OC of magic for me, the orange County. I mean, I, I just love it. <laughs> Yeah, well, they, I mean, Kaya Foglio did the uh, the OG Millstone, too, in the OG Energy Flux. I mean, like, I don't think... Kaja. Oh, is it is it Kaja? Um, yeah, she, she did those ones. And I think those are some of the most revered cards, not just for what they do, but because those arts are so iconic, you know? And it's not it's not this grounded sort of thing, but it's it's fun. I mean, Stone. I love that you can see the expressions on characters' faces. Like in Stone Rain, you have this little goblin who looks like it's wearing almost like a fur, like a mink coat, running away from these like meteors coming down. It's great. Yeah, and as a person who started playing and revised, I'll tell you the art on Sorceress Queen just makes me think of magic. Like that's, that's one of the, the few like pieces of art that just brings me back to those days. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it has that, it has that element of the, I mean, it, it's, it's nineties in its actual um, timeline, but it has that feeling of, of almost the uh, stranger things, sort of eighties D and D, you know, high fantasy sort of stuff. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, which is where we came from. That's where our game came from. Right. And it, it really, especially in those early days for me, um, it had helped to evoke this wider world, like that could exist. And you had the, the art that was a little bit, you know, the different artists next to each other that evoked different versions of the world. And it was like, well, this is just this wide scape because I'm getting just these little glimpses in one of this art and this art of all these different places. And I wonder too, if in a, in a sort of thinking about this in universe thing, you know, these are different representation. These are different artists representations, maybe in that world of what they're seeing. And so you maybe get a character, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I'm just like, uh, the goblin King, for instance, like the Foglios did a, a goblin King. That's this pudgy little, yep. you know, sharp toothed guy that's sunk into his chair and just looks like he's a kid on a, on a stack of candy. And then you have somebody like Pete, I think Pete Venters did one too. And he's much more regal and much more like the, the ugly goblin that we know today. And I, you know, I like that idea that it's, it's separate artists representing the same thing. Like we would see in the real world where two Renaissance artists have completely different styles, 
but maybe they're painting a similar sort of thing, a castle one way and then a castle a completely different way. Well, I mean, like you said, I, I know that there's been a knock. I mean, the, the move has been towards uniformity. Uh, I know that there still is a lot of variations in the art. Um, you know, Lineman points this out a lot, that the art is very different. And, and you could show how it is different. But it, it is still, like they said, it's not like you don't get within the same set kind of disjointed looking things. At the same time, that is the real world. We all see things, you know, let's go back to a, is it a yellow dress or is it a blue green? Well, I don't even remember, <laughs> but the point being that we have perspectives. And so what you're saying about the goblin King is, yeah, it, wh whose perspective is that from? Is it from the other goblins? That may mean something very different than if you're having the Venter's version, which is somebody on the outside looking in. Right. No, I love that. Yeah, I love the Foglio art, even even though it draws a little bit of ire. Maybe because it draws a little bit of ire. So what's yours, Joe? Uh, mine, I'm going to bring it home with another artist, actually, sort of. that's a It's a good leaping off point for me. Uh, so fun fact, actually, I went to the same high school as magic artist Jeff Miracola. Um, and when he comes to the GP in Minneapolis this summer, I'm really hoping to have a, a vintage artist deck of his built so that he can play it. Um, but Jeff Miracolo was the guy who invented the, the dumb little creatures that we know as beebles. And they're these tiny pink, sometimes grayish, uh, little balls. They look like, they look like squished down teddy bears almost. They have, they're just like little ball bodies with like sort of bear ears, but then they have these long spindly arms and legs and like big buggy eyes and they're they're just so stupid. They're like they're like Magic's version of I don't know, like if a if lemmings crossbred with the golden snitch from Harry Potter, like that's sort of what I I envision this. They're just like so the backstory of Beebles is that they were this essentially proto homunculus that the wizards on the Talarian Academy created as lab rats, essentially, they, they were supposed to be like dumb test subjects. And then they all of a sudden just started reproducing like crazy and started, you know, essentially just pouring out of the corner, you know, the cracks of the walls in the academy. And well, OK, they also developed them as lab rats and then ate them. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that? That car, the card? I mean, saute. There's literally a Beeble recipe, and it's like talking about how great Beebles are and how you want to choose the correct Beeble for your. Re I mean, the card is called saute. I mean, that's all we need to know, right there. And I, I believe it's a, a card, a different card actually, too, that says, um, uh, "Gosh, I, I'm going to blank on the name. I'll look it up while I'm saying this." But. Uh, Rain, the Academy Chancellor, who is the wife of Baron, the wizard headmaster of Talaria. Oh, it's, it's Bubbling Beebles. Yeah, yeah. Uh, here, I'll read this verbatim. Chancellor Rain canceled the annual Beeble roast. I should have married a crueler woman. Like, Baron actually is so mad that the annual feast of the Beebles, <laughs> feasting on Beebles, was canceled. Like, that he's insulting his wife. Like, come on, man. Well, I, I, I basically think the way you describe them, Joe, is it, like you describe this lemming versus snitch, but I also think you basically just called them the Ewoks of the Magic the Gathering world. Oh, 100%. They are adorable. 
Like, like I want – it's the same sort of thing, though. It's Ewoks are small teddy bears that, like, are so uh, – this is a this is a, another Star Wars podcast. But they're, like, tiny, like, warrior people who just weaponize anything around them. And all of a sudden – like, Beebles just make stuff blow up on accident. Yeah. They're amazing. Well, and you told us last time that there is uh, Ewok jerky, which is, like, very uncomfortable to me. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of parallels. Well, we should dig it. We should do a Beeblecast. We, oh. <laughs> if we can get Miracola on for a Beeblecast, that would be amazing. I'm writing that idea down. I'll email him. Um, Beeblecast. Beeblecast. That's our show. Thanks for listening, Podwalkers. Remember, you can find the podcast at Goblin Lore Pod on Twitter. You can email us at goblinlorepodcast at gmail.com. Joe Redman can be found at Findhorn, that's F-Y-N-D Horn on Twitter. Hobbs Q can be found at Hobbs Q on Twitter. And Alex Newman can be found at Alexander New M. Thank you all for listening, and remember... Let sleeping elder dragons lie.